0: Welcome to Science Night, presented by the River Power Podcast Bell. Hello everybody, and thank you for joining us in the very first episode of the Science Night podcast. This has been a long time coming and I am so excited to get started. Now before we get into the interview, I should probably take a minute to explain what you can expect from this podcast going forward. So this is going to be our very first interview episode And what I've done is I've sat down with a scientist and gave them the opportunity to tell the story about their work and how they got interested in their work and in science in general. In two weeks, we'll revisit a topic that we covered during this interview, and we'll explore it a little bit deeper. The theory behind this podcast is that in making the scientist seem approachable, you will make the work seem approachable. And the follow-up episode is kind of like our proof of concept. Now, the scientists that we talked to in the interview will not be joining us. Those will be episodes put together by me. And if I can understand something and present it, then anybody can do it. So I think that's enough housekeeping. Let's get started with our first episode. I am so excited to speak to our first guest on this podcast. I sat down with Kathleen Muldoon. She's a biological anthropologist and a professor in the Department of Anatomy at Midwestern University in Arizona. She is an incredible person, and it doesn't hurt that we've known each other for a fairly long amount of time. But... We kept the conversation away from Canadian snack foods and focused on the science. Be sure to stay tuned all the way to the end of the episode where I will share what the subject of our follow-up episode will be. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Kathleen Muldoon. Thank you so much for talking with me today, Kathleen. It has been a really long time. Um, I guess maybe we should like remove the curtain and let people know about what it's like to record a podcast. It actually hasn't been that long since we've talked to each other because we've tried to do this a couple times and things, things get in the way. Computers melt. Kids melt down. Life happens.
1: Right. Both together at the same time. (laughs)
0: <laughs> you know that that's often how it is, <laughs> but uh, but absolutely thank you for doing this. Um, we have a couple questions that we're going to talk about, and the first one is probably the most pressing. Is could you tell us a little bit about your work right now?
1: Sure. Um, so I do a couple of things that seem very different, I think, but I think I come to both from the same philosophy, and that is that I am an anthropologist. And anthropologists are people who study humans in all of their diversity, including past and present, culture, biological change, everything that kind of makes us us human. And so that is really uh, what I was trained in. And what my research is kind of stems from that, even though both areas seem kind of different and so the two areas are that I do primate paleontology and so that means that I look at the fossil record of primate evolution and specifically I look at uh, lemurs which are the prosimians I will say the small more you know, cat-like looking primates that live today only on the island of Madagascar, but in the past were both much more kind of diverse and all the kind of different forms that they take than they are today, but also existed in many different parts of the world, not just in Madagascar. And so I study why they went extinct, why some of them, some of the forms have gone extinct in Madagascar, what's happening to the populations that are there today, what it means for humans and their interaction with the environment and their interactions with the environment since they arrived on that island. And so that was kind of really uh, the focus of my research for a long time. Uh, but a lot of us, when we do our training in anthropology, don't necessarily teach in anthropology when we get our jobs at, um, at a university level, If that's the kind of job that you, that you get. And most of us actually end up teaching anatomy in different environments at med schools, for example, medical schools. And so through anthropology, I started teaching anatomy and uh, taught the various, what we call the anatomical sciences. And so that's anatomy. It's also embryology or the development of babies in utero and how that can happen typically and atypically. And so that was kind of my area of focus for teaching and I don't know I'm just the kind of person that kind of likes to bring some intellectual curiosity to everything I do and so I became curious in how we teach med students and uh, how they retain knowledge that we give them and also how what we teach them has impacts on the way that they um, treat their patients and on public health issues and so today my research is kind of twofold I, I have some active field sites in paleontology in different parts of the world. And then I also do some work close to home on, um, public health and medical education.
0: Great. So I want to, I want to hit on a couple things, but, uh, the first thing I want to circle back to, uh, and I just said circle back like a minute.
1: <laughs> You're a circle back guy. See, I never knew that. That's right.
0: Uh, <laughs> but, uh, So I want to go back and talk about uh, the fact that you said a lot of people who are trained in anthropology do not teach in the field of anthropology. Yeah. Um, And I found that to be true just based on the anthropologists I know uh, do not tend to actually work in a department of anthropology. Do you think there is um, a reason for that? Is it a supply and demand thing or is it uh, something a little bit deeper?
1: Yeah, so you know, I thought about that for a long time. For my specific case, I'll say a couple of things. It is supply and demand. Like, there for a while, especially when I was doing my training in kind of the early, what do you say, the early knots, the early two yeah. thousands to two thousand six, when I the past. kind of graduate in the early in the past of this current millennium. Um, there were a lot of us that were going through school at the same at the same time, and it turns out that the people. Uh, who teach anatomy tend to be anthropologists because we study anatomy so many different ways, those of us who end up working on fossils or even just human biological diversity. And so we're trained in, um, like in my uh, PhD training, I took human gross anatomy with the med school students. Um, I also took comparative anatomy, so looking at um, anatomy of different Different animals uh, across groups and looking at similarities and differences. I took a course in embryology uh, mainly because uh, to kind of add that job skill and bioarchaeology, so studying just the bones themselves and of different animals, but also human osteology and just of of bones. So we we take a diversity of forms of anatomy, which gives us kind of a depth to the knowledge. And you know, people who get uh, MDs. Uh, don't do that, right? They take um, sure. anatomy as part of their, of their training, but then they go on to apply it, as they should, right, to the public benefit and kind of <laughs> treating people. And so the, those of us who are left to kind of teach it and to teach it um, in kind of this broad perspective um, are the anthropologists. And so at most of the leading med schools, you'll find that actually the, the people who are teaching are either anthropologists or um, paleontologists. And so it is kind of a sli- supply and demand because it gives us another venue, to um, have a, an appointment in an academic setting. Uh, in my particular case, I was dating and then married another anthropologist in my program who did not enjoy taking anatomy. And so since when we once we kind of realized <laughs> we were going to be two ana- or two anthropologists looking for a job, we thought, well, maybe one of us should kind of take up this job skill and you know, so we could live together, being married people, which is always nice. So I think that's kind of where it comes from. But um, I'll also take a step back, and when I say anthropologist, I'm talking about the brand of anthropology that's called biological anthropology. But sure, all sure. of my training, from you know undergraduate to graduate school, uh, and then also my first uh, job positions were always in departments that had all four branches of anthropology. So that's biological anthropology, archaeology, cultural anthropology, and linguistic anthropology as a separate field. So that perspective, I think is a really big part of who I am and thinking about the human experience and human diversity and cultural competency is another viewpoint, which is super important to training anybody who's going to be in the healthcare field, I think. And so I think that is also gives us, um, you know, a really solid place in taking these positions in medical schools.
0: Yeah. And it seems like, um, you know, there's probably the opportunity in anything to be multifaceted and and give yourself the best opportunity. But uh, like within the discipline of anthropology, it seems like the bioarchaeologists or bioanthropologists are a little bit better suited to have a wider net that they're casting um, as far as the possibility of getting jobs in the future, where somebody who is like a cultural anthropologist, you have a a, a narrower field to to look at.
1: I think so. I think if you're thinking about like very traditional academic jobs, but I know some cultural anthropologists who have some really good, uh, like cool positions with nonprofits and um, doing Mm -hmm. applied work and, like just a lot of ways to kind of take that skill set and doing like qualitative research. So like, and just that deep hanging out where you get to really know people and understand um, Mm -hmm. that's really applicable to like market research and, um, and even just, you know, the kinds of, of government jobs where they kind of want to know what, um, what people are thinking about how they're doing, you know, when governments are open to getting that kind of feedback. So there are sometimes really good positions for cultural anthropologists there. So, if I, if I went back, I always think now, you know, I would, I wish I had taken more cultural anthropology, but I feel very lucky that I, I, I kind of, that my path kind of took me uh, cultural anthropology adjacent. Let's say that. So sure. Yeah.
0: Um, and it, and it does seem that, uh, that within departments of anthropology, it is getting a little bit more friendly as far as the interdisciplinary cooperation that archaeologists are able to look to cultural anthropologists for more context And everything is kind of working a little bit more cohesively where, um, you know, even in the fairly recent past that that may not have always been the case. And that's probably uh, different for every institution because you have different personalities and different fuses.
1: (laughs) I think so. Right. I don't know. Like my my reading of that, I never was part of one of those departments that were super controversial but i feel like that was part of the 70s where like there are different hippies that were going you know in 80s there are different hippies that were going into being biological anthropologists and the hippies that were going into being cultural anthropologists right. and so the post-processualism and you know all of the things that that came up that were you know building up these walls i i, I don't know i think that might exist still someday but i are still today but i haven't really experienced that too much so
0: Yeah. Yeah. I just I just, you know, you take intro classes and you talk about how, well, you know, we didn't like to talk to each other too much and we would have a couple floors in between us. And, uh, you know, this is where the archaeologists hung out and it seemed like the linguistics were just happy to be there. Um, (laughs) Right. We're
1: anthropologists, (laughs) too.
0: Yeah. No, I think
1: that's true. I think that's that's true. But we also like to tell stories, you know, I think that there's those stories are definitely factual. Sure. But I don't know fighting academics you know uh, right i mean we're the worst right. like let's let's fight about theory and hegemony and words that like people in the general population don't even care oh, about
0: Oh, and methods methods and methods don't even... i
1: don't know really yeah. come on let's just not
0: <laughs> perfect yeah so you uh you and your research um have in the past done quite a bit of Of field work, uh, that was a pretty big component, uh, correct?
1: Yes, yes, and I still, I still have uh, a few active research uh, field sites. Mm
0: -hmm. And uh, and you know, you talked about also bringing on like educational pedagogical approaches to teaching as well. Can you talk about the different mindsets you need to bring to those two varieties of research projects?
1: Right. It seems like it, right? It seems like they should be very different. and But I really feel like they're not. I feel like what I bring to kind of my life and even just, I guess maybe it's just my academic projects and research projects, but, you know, is kind of a scientific or intellectual curiosity and just why and how do we know what we know. And... So in grad school, to get a PhD, at least in my program, you needed to have two language. You need to show proficiency in two different languages. And so I'm Canadian, so I had French. Um, and then the chair of our department was essentially a statistician. And so he let statistics be our other language if we were not a cultural anthropologist and needing to kind of integrate into a population that was different than ours. And so... Uh, I really feel like stats became for me good thinking and just being able to appreciate when I read the newspaper, what, what, what the charts that they're showing mean and interpreting that. And so I think that my approach to my research questions are kind of the same. Like, how do we know that? So one of the main questions in, my paleontology research is have the environments in madagascar changed recently in a way that indicates you know environmental or climatic change or human impact on the environment and so a lot of the actual projects that stem from that big question are really just how do we know like, what do we look at? Do we look at mm-hmm. um, the fossils? And what what? how do we look at the fossils? And how can we compare them to from the past to what they are, are there today? And so it is some kind of statistical modeling or even just kind of choosing the right tests because you can't just go and look at fossils without some kind of question in, in your mind, right? And sure. I think the same is true for for teaching. Like, how do we know that this is a better method to teach. There's a lot of discussion in education about, you know, how much time you should spend in class, how much time you should give students to learn on their own. Do students really learn? If you stand at the front of the classroom, do very traditional teaching, do they not? And those are all important questions, or things to think about when you're putting together your content delivery for students in your class or any kind of science communication. But like, how do you know it's effective? And how do you know it's having um, an impact on students or on public health interventions uh if you're especially if you're trying to get people to change their behavior um in relation to some kind of health hazard like how do you know how do you know it's working like how do you measure that um and so i feel like that's kind of when 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 i meet an interesting question in my life one of the first things that goes into my mind is how do you know that you know or how how could you know that sure so that that's kind of i think kind of how i i bridge those two things
0: I think that is a good thing for the average college student and and maybe even a high school student to hear is that there is a lot of work that goes into how a subject is taught um, and how a lesson plan is put together. You may think that your professor is just throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks, but there is, there's a little bit of method behind, behind that work.
1: I hope so. Right. I mean, don't you think there should be?
0: I guess I should throw that up with the caveat of the good professors will put a little <laughs> bit of method behind uh, the lesson plan.
1: Always think about it. I guess what I always say to students is, you know, when you're looking through my slides or when we're in conversation, it is always a fair question to say, "Why do you have that on the slide?" You know, sure. what what is that? Not just what does it mean, but like. Why? Why are we supposed to know that? What's the point? That is a totally fair question. I should be able to to answer that, right? If it's some extraneous piece of information, it doesn't need to be there, right? Like why? I really try to think about why. Why do they need to know that? What what am I trying to convey in this usually, right, visual representation Mm -hmm. uh, of what I'm presenting? Because we all have verbal diarrhea, right? I mean, like, you know, I can't control what I say, but I can control what I premeditate and put on a slide.
0: Yeah, no, I I think that's I think that's the benefit of kind of injecting, taking an approach where you're injecting the scientific method onto your uh, preparation, where there is already that feedback loop of like, this is the right way for now. And we're going to keep looking at this and we're going to be questioned and we're going to reevaluate and we're going to change course. And the course that I'm teaching five years from now, hopefully, is not that similar it's at least not a carbon copy to the course that i'm teaching today
1: right even if Um, the content doesn't change that much as you could argue for anatomy right it the, the students do yeah and so even if it's you're just taking that feedback and you know what do the students need and and how do people learn because you know things are a lot different now than they were when i was in the seats from when you know even i was in grad school and started teaching so Uh, that's I think the value in that and I think you know it's important for students to think of themselves as consumers of the information Um, not Mm -hmm. you know in kind of a I paid money to be sitting in these chairs but really just like you know what what am I like being engaged like what am I supposed to learn here
0: so do you think being open to questions that come in like that increases engagement in your classes
1: in my classes, I hope so. I mean, I try to be open um, to those kinds of comments, and um, I actually much prefer getting them via email or from student conversations than I do in the anonymous course evaluations at the end of the year, because there are a lot of just inherent problems in the way that those are typically run. In fact, ours are only administered after students get their grade. so. They're supposed to be anonymous, but sometimes there's so many details provided and how students feel about their grade and their (laughs) projects that I I know I could tell who wrote different. You know, because I read them and it's grades are emotional. Grades are emotional, uh, especially when you are trying to get somewhere and you feel like they have an effect. And, you know, a lot of what I teach are students trying to get into med school, students in their first year of med school wanting to get a good residency. You know, that's a lot of stress. And I'm glad I never went through that in my life. But so that has to do with the system and the method. But I very much appreciate when students come and they say, I don't understand why you have that or have you thought about this is how I understand it when they come in and they try to explain something back to me and I can really see what their perspective is because it really does provide me with some good feedback. And hopefully students are find me open to it. Mm -hmm. Criticism is hard. Yeah,
0: No, it's true. And and I think there's a larger conversation that we could have. We could probably have a much more controversial but maybe highly more highly rated conversation about (laughs) the method but I'm not going to make you commit to that conversation at this time all right right all right at least I
1: have thoughts I have words on that
0: (laughs) (laughs) so it's apparent that you put a lot of thought and effort into your your craft as an instructor and It's obvious that there was somebody or something in your past that got you interested in this. So can you talk about like the thing that got you interested in science generally, or if there is specifically something that got you interested into biological anthropology or both?
1: Yeah, I have. I have stories that are along those lines. And so and for me, it goes actually way back, probably earlier than most people had ever heard the word anthropology. Uh, I always loved school. I loved learning things and just learning different things. And so for me, I was really drawn to a lot of different subjects. And early in high school, you know, when you start taking more in-depth in depth courses and single topics, I found that I really loved biology and I also really loved history and civics and things like that. And so it was in grade 10 which is how we refer to it in Canada, I know you guys say 10th grade here, so I just outed myself maybe, that the teacher who taught us ancient civilizations started that course with a discussion of Australopithecines as kind of the earliest civilization. And it blew my mind. I was like, what is this coming together of biology and history all in one package? (laughs) And that teacher was Joe Tramble and he was an archeologist by training. And so he brought his expertise with him into the classroom. And sure that was in the textbook. It was in like a paragraph, but like we spent much more time on it. And I was just fascinated, you know, because that to me is really what it was, right? It's like studying biology, but with a historical perspective and I just thought this is amazing. And so I was really lucky because he was such a dynamic teacher and a great mentor. And from there really kind of took me under his wing and, you know, got me involved with, I went to high school in a kind of a suburb of Toronto. And so I, there was a, a, like a mentorship program that, where you could go as a high school student and become involved in research um, with professors. Uh, at the university campus. And kind of through Mr. Tramble, I got involved in some of those research projects. One was in forensic anthropology, which, you know, was cool. We did a facial reconstruction, but I knew early on that kind of wasn't exactly what I was interested in, which is sort of the application of anthropology to, to the law. But it was interesting to become a part of. And then um, another project was basically sorting through the remains of animals from an archeological site. And so I became very early on involved in tiny research projects, essentially by reaching out to two professors. I ended up going to the University of Toronto and um, where they had a specialization of the honors degree just in biological anthropology. And I kind of actually, when I was there, even um, had another great mentor who ended up being my um, master's thesis advisor, uh, Mario Gagnon, who just really also was just very generous and a great teacher um had research in the fayum in egypt which is a world-renowned site which is a kind of a pivotal and key site in primate evolution and kind of led my interests from australopithecines which which are i know i used that word earlier and i didn't define what they are but they're kind of the earliest human type forms that are on our lineage um, to who we are but the people who work on them, you know, they just have huge egos. And I am not that person, I don't think. And so even though at first I was like, yeah, I'm going to work on, uh, you know, on on the earliest hominins and all this stuff. I just it was not, you know, once I, I think I even went to some guest lectures of some of the key players at that time
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, who came, you know, through lecture series. And and it was amazing to see these people speak. Um, like, so I saw Alan Walker. I saw Philip Tobias. Um, and it was just it was amazing but I realized it was also not my bag sure and so through Mario I kind of was able to kind of explore all the different aspects of primate evolution and I think I kind of slowly worked myself uh, kind of forward and then backward in time so I went from you know earliest hominins and then I thought well it's a little controversial I don't want to do that and then early primate evolution and I was like well you know that's actually still kind of a lot of the extra stuff that goes into science sometimes especially when you when you study things like fossils on the primate line and we're primates and that can become very kind of heated and so anyway through through mario i kind of ended up working for my phd i went to one of his former colleagues i worked with with a guy at washington university in st louis and we worked on stuff from madagascar and so i kind of ended up with a really cool project and a really cool place and it was basically because of these two professors that helped shape that, showed me that my interests could actually be something, and sure. kind of put me on that path. So you know, both both a mentor story and the how I came to science story.
0: I'm really happy that you were able to find a path that was really interesting to you, but also kind of fit your personality. And I'm assuming when you're talking about the giants of the Australopithecine scientific landscape, you're talking mostly about Lee Berger's nine-year-old son. (laughs) Pretty much. Which is my favorite story in all of science. And we're not going to talk about that story right now. but, (laughs) But no, just to kind of touch on that, how much of the really big personalities, we'll say being being in that early hominid so um Australopithecus and and early genus homo you know that kind of seems like that's where the big personalities are mm-hmm. do you think that limits the science in in that specific area oh
1: sure i definitely do i think in a few different ways right i think that the people who like personal notoriety for their work and the the kind of big papers that garner a lot of media attention, which has really become a thing recently, right? I mean, the way that people promote themselves on mm-hmm. social media and stuff like that. And I don't know that it's it's bad, but it definitely attracts a certain kind of person uh, to that kind of science. And like, sure. let's be let's face it, right? Like, anthropologists are, especially biological anthropologists, can be. Let's put it this way, can be. People looking for a backdoor to biology, <laughs> who, who, um, just—I mean—you have got to have a certain amount of wherewithal to, to that. Your goal is to find the last common ancestor, right? The people that, right. that led to us. I mean, that you know, it, there's a, a certain drive about yourself and where we came from, and it just is—you know—it's very instead of just thinking about broader biological questions. And so, I think it limits if your goal is to get. The cover of the New York Times or something, sure, that's gonna limit your science, right? It's gonna limit how you spin the work. I think for a long time and even still today, those people are mainly men. And so it's hard to be a woman trying to break into that field and you have to be uh, you gotta put up with a lot of stuff. And that kudos to the women who have, but there's also been some terrible stories, right? So I think if you don't have a diversity of people looking at some of these fossils, right? And interpreting the variation in their bones from different perspectives and um, thinking about not just bipedalism, but obstetrical concerns. And so having like a baby's gonna change the shape of the hips, you know, just as much as becoming bipedal, which is a hallmark of being on the human line, you know, I think it's gonna affect that science. and so yeah, I mean, when you have a lot of political things surrounding the actual work, then it's going to, I think, limit the science. And so for me, that's just not a very attractive thing. Uh, And for some people, it is.
0: This is a, a huge issue in science that we could talk about for hours and hours and hours. But do you think that, you know, the big personalities in that field have anything to do with the the way that those uh, projects are funded you need a you need a large amount of money to run a camp in the middle of the areas where these fossils are in Africa and to scrape together that money you kind of need to have the personality of someone who's not afraid to go into a room and ask for several million dollars in in funding yeah so do you think that's kind of like a self-perpetuating uh, system as of right now.
1: So I think funding has kind of changed, right? It used to be kind of you went in and you did the big ask, and either a private donor or one of the main funding agencies would would give it to you. Right now, it's a little bit more rigorous in terms of scientific review and supposed to be taking some of the bias out of that. So I think it definitely framed it early on. I mean, you had like the Leaky family and. You know, private donors. You had even people who worked in different time periods in different places like Elwyn Simons who's uh, kind of the godfather of primate paleontology and he you know definitely had private donors, definitely had a big personality. And so I, did, I think definitely in the 70s and 80s it was like that. Now hopefully that is shifting a little bit. I know a number of big projects are run or co-run by men and women together. People whose personalities may be Aren't so geared towards that kind of bombastic, stereotypical paleontology and and human mm-hmm. paleontology kind of personality. Uh, I think it is shifting a little bit, but I definitely think that's sort of part of it. And you know, you gotta have a hook to get money to go do something, mm-hmm. and then you live in the middle of you know in remote areas for an extended period of time without with you know a crew of various sides. So it's, it's, you know, it's kind of a weird science, right? It's not like working in yeah. the bench and running pipettes. Like you, you're in close quarters, usually in remote areas where maybe the only people who speak your language are the people that you're there with mm-hmm. from the international team. And so there's a lot of uniqueness to primate paleontology work.
0: Yeah. So what is the thing that really, uh, really gets you to go out into the field, you know, other than that spark for curiosity. Is the remoteness something that is something that's appealing to you? Is it being able to possibly find something new and fill in those puzzle pieces? Or is it is it something else?
1: Yeah, I would say it's a combination, right? I really love um, I really love that time of year where you get to just go out and and the only thing that you do is your science or your work mm-hmm. and it's remote and you're sleeping in a tent and everything is disconnected uh, or unconnected how do you say it what you're unconnected from like you know cell phones and right. and, and all of that and so you know it's amazing usually it's in beautiful places um, the majority of my field work has been either in um, North America and kind of the interior of Wyoming or Utah and in Madagascar. And in both those places, you know, you drive for a long time over, you know, remote access roads to get to the, the places where fossils are, which are usually kind of exposed bad land areas, or you can mm-hmm. dig down into road cuts and marshy areas and other places. And so um, there's a camaraderie that usually goes with being with a team. Sure. And it's like knowing that you're discovering something that nobody has seen, for some X number of years, right? Whether it be like when I work in North America, it's 35 to 50 million years. And when I work in Madagascar, it's much shorter periods of time, like sometimes only 500 to years old to like 20,000. And so I think knowing that you're holding something in your hands or uncovering it from the earth that took that length of time to kind of be there and be exposed. And you are the one that had the luck essentially to be there to find it. And then that could add to something of how, of our knowledge of how we understand the world it's it's very exciting mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and sometimes you can even kind of fit that puzzle piece into the questions you're asking while you're right there it's not like you have to wait for the results to come back you can kind of see and based on your kind of knowledge you're bringing and, and kind of data that you have in your in your head a lot of times about how things look and and how mm-hmm. something looks and maybe that doesn't quite fit the paradigm of what you're looking for so maybe it's something new I mean, that's kind of exciting and the conversations that you can have around the campfire yeah. are really exciting in that way so you know it is a sense of collegiality and it is a sense of like common goals and you know it's, it's just a lot of fun
0: and in all your work there is a certain amount of stress that just kind of comes along with it right you know you're, you're working on this project that you could put years of your life into and not actually have a satisfying answer to your question right you could have a student that just is not buying what you're selling and uh, all of a sudden your day is very different than you were expecting it to be at the beginning of that lecture session you could have your four-year-old just run into the room when you're trying to record a (laughs) podcast and put the entire day day on hold i
1: don't think that happens doesn't happen to good parents I'm just kidding.
0: I'm just kidding. I'm I'm keeping that in. (laughs) What are some of the ways that you found to help in in those times when frustration is going high, when emotions are running high, because burnout is a huge factor in in a lot of things, but specifically in academia, you know, it's a pretty common occurrence. Have you, have you The magic uh, recipe to avoid that?
1: Uh, I don't know if I found the magic recipe, but I think it certainly changes depending on where you are in your career track. Uh, And I think it also changes depending on who you are and and where you land when you have like an academic job, because I think that's what we're talking about, right? Like when you're on like the tenure track and, and have like what we consider to be a very traditional academic position. And so I think, you know, what I would say is this is, you know, you got to remember, it's so hard. This is going to sound so strange if you're not an academic, but it's so hard to remember sometimes this is your life. This is your life and that you need to balance your life with your work. Because I think it's true for a lot of academics, no matter what field that they're in, that they begin to equate, you begin to equate your work with your life and your success with a grant or with tenure or with you know, publications uh, or even teaching evaluations, right, to be your life and a measure of your success at life, and that is through, through various journeys on my own path. I, I just came to realize that that's not true. I am part, I am an anthropologist, and that is who I am. And I've you know I've done some really cool things in Africa and North America, and you know had some really cool experiences. But that's not my life, and most people in the world don't know anything about that. And so it's fine. I'm also a mom, I'm also a wife. I'm also uh, someone who loves music. I'm also a public health advocate like of a lot of different things and and that is cool. And I think that one of the nice things that academia can afford you is is that you can let your life lead what your interests are as well. And I think if people aren't doing this, like I would kind of also advocate for it that you you know let your life lead. What you're interested in and what your your research questions are and it's okay for it to change sure. whether that be long term or temporarily and so i have three children and all of them love disney am i allowed to say that can i say disney
0: yeah <laughs> okay yeah we'd love to be sponsored by that
1: okay <laughs> and like you know moana was like a was a big hit here and i have to say at the outset like i basically cry through every disney movie now um being a a woman someone referred to me recently as a woman of early middle age which i didn't really appreciate it even though it's probably true and um so you know moana's grandmother she says you know the people you love will guide you the people you love will change you or something i'm messing up the words to her song but it's definitely true and and your life will change kind of where you where you go but it doesn't change who you are and it doesn't change what you bring to the table for your science Mm -hmm. and so for me that is how i avoid getting burned out or just hating a project Mm -hmm. Uh, which Mm -hmm. can totally happen i mean it happens to all of us when we're doing our dissertation because you're basically forced to work on the same thing for (laughs) you know five to seven years and by the time you're done writing it and people criticizing you like just over and over again i think that people don't realize how much criticism there is in academia like you get teaching evaluations you get you know, evaluations on your publications, you get evaluations on your grants, you get colleagues coming in and, and like ranking you and deciding if you get promoted or not. Like, there's a lot of it is like just constant like criticism. And I think it's hard, it's hard to get past that yeah. until you realize I'm a person outside of this and I am a person who brings all these things to the table and this is my value. And also, all of these skills are valuable to me in lots of different places outside of academia. And most people sure. in the world aren't academics Great. Right. and so no. to me that's like kind of how you if you have that perspective there's a lot of things that you that a lot of us can do and so it's good to keep that in mind
0: yeah and i i think that's advice that anyone can put into their professional life you have to you have to be able to have something that is more than the thing you're working on right now or you are just in a downward spiral and it's really tough to get out of that if you can't find meaning outside of of your profession because if that profession goes away then then it becomes really tough really quickly
1: right and even if it doesn't go away and even if you do you have like six pubs a year or 10 or whatever you know like Mm -hmm. no one's gonna agree with your point of view all the time and in fact our job when we're given something to review like you're supposed to be critical like that is your job you're supposed to and some people like you know reviewer number two is always picking out the worst parts you know and even if it's criticizing your paper because it's not about something else well (laughs) i didn't write that paper about that thing so it's not going to be about that but like constantly hearing that can bring you down and so it's okay to be focused it's okay to be prolific it's okay to be all those things and it's also okay to know that that's not the only thing that is who you are right i mean we play that improv game right where you have like a minute and you just say all the things that you are right and (laughs) that is actually a good thing i actually like had my med students do that you know because it's hard when you're so embroiled and you put so much emphasis on one whole part of your life like you do when you're in med school for example right and Mm -hmm. that is Mm -hmm. your defining characteristic but like there's so much more to all of us and so much more value
0: So I've taken up quite a bit of your time, but I do have one more question for you and I think you can answer this one pretty quickly. What would you like to clear up as like the biggest misconception of a scientist of like the work of a scientist that the public might have? So this would be for like a general, a general audience.
1: I guess I'll say this and maybe this is kind of the pull of the recent talking here, but being a scientist doesn't make you an expert in all things, right? That we become very focused in our training, in our expertise, and that science is the accumulation of facts over time. And in order to do that, you have to become somewhat specialized, right? So I am an anthropologist, and there are various things that I focus on within that field. And there is a fraction of the information that is known for all of anthropology that I know, let alone all of science, right? And I think one of the things that's become kind of a misconception these days is kind of what expertise being a scientist is and how to parse out uh, science from pseudoscience or what's a credible resource. And so I think as a scientist, actually the best thing that I know about myself or that I bring to the table as a scientist is being able to say, I don't know, and being able to go to, to someone who I know is an expert in a subject area and learning from them, which is something that I do every day in every aspect of my science, whether it's something I've worked on for a long time or something that I'm reading about on social media. And that I think is the most important part about being a credible scientist. And the most important thing that we can offer the general public is what's a credible source and what's not. And that science is basically the process of saying, I don't know, and I'm gonna figure it out.
0: Thank you so much for talking with me, Kathleen. I had such a good time reconnecting and chatting about your work. If you were listening, you heard Kathleen mention the Leakey family at one point when she was talking about Australis. And I decided that for our follow-up episode, we would take a look at Mary Leakey. She's an incredible woman. I hope that you join us in two weeks for a look at her life and some of the amazing finds that she has made in Africa. Follow Kathleen on Twitter at Prof Muldoon. That's at P-R-O-F-M-U-L-D-O-O-N. You will not be disappointed. And as always, thank you to the River Power Podcast Mel. If you'd like to learn more about this network of creators and their shows, check out the website at riverpower.xyz. For past episodes, show notes, and information about upcoming live events, visit the Science Night homepage at scinight.com. Thank you so much for listening, and join us in two weeks where we take a look at the life and work of Mary Leakey. Have a great night.